You are listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. The Stark statute has generated confusion, anger, and has financially handcuffed the entrepreneurial spirit of physicians. Such reactions are understandable given how easy it is to violate the law and how severe the penalties are. Today we will attempt to defuse the confusion by illuminating the stark reality. Welcome to the Business of Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today is Jim Bream, an attorney with the offices of Query and Harrow in Chicago. Jim concentrates on the defense of hospitals, managed care organizations, and physicians in professional liability programs. He has handled cases in the trial and appellate courts and is a featured speaker and guest lecturer on various healthcare and legal medical issues. Welcome, Jim. Thank you, Larry. Glad to be here. Jim, we hear a lot about Stark and the Stark laws, and I was wondering if you could shed a little light on some background to the Stark laws and what exactly are they trying to regulate. I thought it would be helpful if we could use our time today discussing the Stark laws and some recent changes to highlight what we'll call the Stark reality. All right. So where do these Stark regulations come from? The Stark regulations, not to be confused with the anti-kickback regulations, are named for Congressman Pete Stark, who sponsored the bill. Jim, I hear lawyers and doctors speaking of both Stark 1 and Stark 2. Can you tell me the difference between these? The regulations are generally divided into Stark 1 and Stark 2 based upon when the specific regulations were passed or which wave of reform they're contained in, reform certainly being the government's view. The general purpose of the laws are to govern and control self-referrals. It's similar to, but we shouldn't confuse it with, the anti-kickback legislation. Physician self-referral is the practice of a physician referring a patient to a medical facility in which he or she has a financial interest, be it ownership, investment, or even a structured compensation arrangement. So how about giving us just a simple example? How about having significant ownership in an MCO, managed care organization, which has an exclusive contract with a lab facility in which the same physician is also the medical director and the principal shareholder? Sounds like the government might have a problem with that. At least if you were a Medicare or a Medicaid participant, it sure would. Legislators became concerned that with such referrals, there might be conflicts of interest between the patient and her physician that were not in the best interests of the patient. The government feared this could result in overuse of services to benefit the physicians at the harm of the patient, and that this would in turn create a captive, anti-competitive referral system. So along came Stark 1 passed under the Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act of 1989. Stark 1 barred self-referrals for clinical laboratory services under the Medicare program, effective January 1, 1992. Not to be outdone, Stark 2 passed in 1993. This covered both Medicare and Medicaid. It expanded the restrictions to a broader array of situations, and also made some relatively minor corrections to Stark 1. Jim, can you boil it down for us? What does Stark 1 and Stark 2 say we really can't do? Well, the basics of Stark can be summed up as follows. The Stark laws and regulations prohibit self-referral by a physician to another provider if the physician has a financial relationship with that provider. 
unless one qualifies for various safe harbor exceptions. Uh, you know, I've heard the term safe harbor, and all I can think of is a nice place to sit on a boat. I'm unclear as to what safe harbor has to do with the practice of medicine. And I think that's the analogy that they wanted to create, that you're taking whatever financial relationship you have and you're parking it in this slip at the marina, but you only have certain slips that you can park it in. And as long as you're in one of those slips, or what we'll call a safe harbor, then the financial relationship is going to be an acceptable one. But if you're in somebody else's slip, or if you're someplace where your ship should not be, the government is going to take issue with that. Any uh, remuneration between a physician and an entity other than as carved out under these safe harbors is going to be subject to a review by the government. This also includes not only the physician, but the physician's immediate family member. So how about, how about an example for that? Let's say your son Ralph has a, a tattoo parlor and a diagnostic lab in the back. You can't very well go and refer everything to Ralph so that the patients can get their lab work done while they're getting tattooed. What if it's convenient for the patient? He's right out back, and he has a good lab. And, you know, I'm not so crazy that he's a tattoo artist, but, you know, he he does still please me by running the lab. So you're saying it doesn't matter if it's convenient, doesn't matter if it's high quality. If my son owns the lab, I cannot send people there. Unfortunately, there's no convenience clause that's built into Stark, and convenience is not one of the safe harbors. Stark also regulates consultations as referrals, but does exclude service personally performed by the ordering physician. In other words, I'll give you an example of that one. You can't refer to a pain service that you have an ownership interest in, but the cardiologist slash internist with a dual practice can refer a patient for a cardiac catheterization procedure and perform the procedure herself. So what about the, the same cardiologist if he has a stress test machine in his office or if he has a nuclear magnet in his office and the patient needs a stress test and he refers it to himself for the stress test? And performs the work. Correct. That would be a safe harbor exception under Stark, and that is acceptable. And for an internist, let's say an internist has a physical therapy department in their office, and it's run by that internist, is that also a safe harbor? Well, this is getting to be a little bit more difficult to answer because we know that the, the physician probably wouldn't be performing the phys physical therapy services. So in that context, one would really need to examine the detailed nature of the relationship as well as the manner in which the services are set up. So do I have to live in fear that there's going to be a Stark Three coming down the road? In fact, like that sort of sprawling suburban neighborhood that we see developing, Stark Two Phase Three regulations were originally due on March 26, 2007. However, on March 23, 2007, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, known as CMS, notified us that it was issuing a one-year extension for publication. Certainly, once issued, we'll have to come back on the air to discuss what changes, amendments, 
and clarifications there are. You're listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell, and today I'm with Jim Bream, attorney and featured speaker on various healthcare and legal medical issues. Jim, let me throw some some examples by you and see what you think if they're in violation of Stark or not. Let's say, hypothetically, a group of specialists wants to earn the business of a primary care group. They want me to send all my patients to them for services. And obviously, we can't do kickbacks because that's illegal. We can't be paid for referrals because that's illegal. It's unethical. But they propose renting space in my office and are willing to pay me, let's say, $1,000 a month to rent space in my office. And in return, they would like me to send them all of my patients that have something to do with their specialty. The catch to it is that they're never going to be in my office. They're just going to put their name on my door, and they're never going to show up. But somehow having that name on the door is legal or fits in the safe harbor somehow. It just it seems a little fishy. I'm just curious what you would think of that arrangement. Remember that Stark is looking to control physician self-referrals. But Stark also, in Stark II legislation, and in particular, in more recent regulations or explanations of Stark II laws, has focused on the lease arrangement. And a lease arrangement like the one that you're positing is one that will certainly raise questions under the government's eyes under Stark. Larry, let me ask you some questions. As a practicing internist, what sort of exposure do you have to Stark? Well, it's a good question. I, I think uh, every everything I do has some exposure to Stark. We have our own little lab inside the office that obviously we do inpatient labs. I'm sorry, in-office labs for those patients that it's convenient for. A lot of these are CLIA-waived exams, and they're easy to do. So I don't really think they fall under Stark. But if I wanted to open my own lab... It would be very difficult because certain insurance companies will not even reimburse me for doing simple things such as a CBC in my office because we are not designated as their their lab. And interestingly enough, in the Wall Street Journal this week was an article about United Healthcare in that they a few months ago changed their contract. They used to be exclusive with with Quest Diagnostics, and now all of a sudden they switched over to LabCorp, where all of their patients have to go to a LabCorp lab. So they are saying now that they will dictate where they will send my patient, and if my patient goes somewhere else, I, the physician, may be fined by United Healthcare. And that seems quite ironical. It seems hypocritical that the big boys are able to kind of steer patients to whatever lab they have a financial interest in. But us little guys, you know, we can't really do what's best for our patient. Not to mention, I guess, the added financial burden on your office to now make a determination, is this a United patient? Is this a Humana patient? Is this a Blue Cross Blue Shield patient? Because it depends on where the lab work is sent and whether or not I will be able to obtain full reimbursement depending on what the managed care organization is. Exactly. It makes the practice of medicine that much more complicated than it needs to be. Do you think that there are physicians out there in the practice who, while they may have heard of Stark and may have some inkling as to what it is, are engaging in relationships, lease agreements, 
becoming medical directors unwittingly? Jim, I think that's happening every day, and I don't think they are very conscious of it unless they run it by an attorney. Sometimes they may not run it by an attorney because it costs money to run it by an attorney. So, yes, I do think there are doctors out there that are entering into kind of iffy relationships. I want to thank our guest, attorney Jim Bream. I'm Dr. Larry Kaskill. You have been listening to The Business of Medicine on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you.